Hey guys, this episode is an immigrant story, the journey of how one person came across so many challenges and setbacks, but continue on his quest towards the American dream. Trigger warning, we will be talking about detention centers and racism, and there's a lot of adult language. This is Being Brown in L.A. Hey guys, we're back and this is Drew and we're back here at Being Brown in LA podcast. My guest today is Wilfredo Echeverria, who's a math educator, a Salvadorian and LA native who moved away for a while, but now he's back and he's actually a good friend of mine. Will, how are you? I'm doing well, Drew. Will, tell us, what do you do? I am a math teacher. I've actually been teaching middle school math for 16 years now. 16 years oh shit okay um and you started teaching here in la or did you start when you were in Oregon? i started teaching here in la so i actually started teaching right after i finished my bachelor's and after i finished my undergrad um i wanted to teach right away and so i read like brand new off of you know having finished my college education i um, wanted to get my career started so i taught for 10 years at a small independent charter school here in LA. Tell us where, where did you go to school? I went to, so for right when I graduated from high school, I went to community college. I went to Santa Monica Community College. And then I went to Loyola Marymount University. And that's where I got my undergrad degree in math. Uh, but needless to say, there were a lot of challenges along the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. What are, tell me, tell me about this. Well, challenges. you know, um, I was not born in this country. I actually was born in El Salvador, and I came to the U.S. when I was seven years old, um, and lived most of my life, most of my childhood, into my young adulthood. From the age of seven until I was 21, I was undocumented, and so having gone through uh, public education as an undocumented student was a challenge. And this was before AB 540. For those of you who know, like the law in California that allows now for undocumented students to receive in-state tuition. Well, this was before that. And so I graduated from high school as an undocumented student um, and could not attend any of the universities that I got into. I actually did well enough to get into UCLA and UC, oh and UC Berkeley. I, I, I was on my way to, to UC Berkeley to become an engineer. At least that's what I thought in my mind. And then my college counselor um so did you actually receive the letters i do and i still have them i still have them to oh this day God. i keep them as a reminder of that hard work that i put into um you know my high school life was all about books and and, and making sure that i was doing the right thing and because i knew like i wanted to go to college but it wasn't something that was told to me that there would be this obstacle, this huge obstacle of getting into or, or being able to attend a university. Um, I was able to get in, but was not able to get any sort of financial aid. There was very little um, private scholarships available for, for undocumented students back. And we're talking about late 90s. So 1997 is when I graduated from high school. There was no Dreamer program then, It, it right? was in the works. It was a, there was some yeah. legwork there, but it wasn't, it wasn't what it is today. So 
I remember what a big struggle it was to accept the fact that all that hard work that I put into getting accepted into these universities, in the back of my mind, I felt like it was for it was it was done in vain. Like there was no reason for me to continue my education if I wasn't able to get to uh, achieve the goal that, that I, I set forth for myself. And that was to get into a four year university. Jesus Christ. So the irony is that you you're a kid, you're told that you should go to school and go to college and succeed because, you know, our parents came here with literally a suitcase and made a life for themselves here. So we're supposed to be that dream of theirs. And we work and you worked your ass off and you got accepted to Berkeley and you got accepted to UCLA, which people who are born here uh, sometimes can't get in, you know, and and it was all like, no, I'm sorry, you're an immigrant. You can't come. <laughs> yeah. And this is the argument that we have now. We're like the the people that are working really hard, these immigrants that are working so hard to get successful and they're not taking up space like some, you know, pieces of crap that are out there trying to overthrow the government these people are actually doing all the work to get there i couldn't imagine getting a letter from berkeley and saying hey welcome welcome and not being a get in it would be heartbreaking it, it was to say the least i i had some really rough days out in my last year of high school um coming to terms with that i mean i drew i i knew who my college roommate was going to be it was one of my high school friends who also got into Berkeley we said if we would both get into Berkeley we would both be rooming together because of course like we'd be starting our college uh, lives together and so like it was it was really hard to even my close friends to let them know why it was that I was not going to this prestigious university that all of them mind you were surprised that I got into <laughs> because they they mm. were they were uh, a lot of my um, my classmates in high school because of the the track that I was on which was like the honors AP track one of the few brown students in that track at my high school um, it wasn't something that was expected of me even by my peers at my high school so for them to kind of look at me like why is it that you're not going to this university that other folks are dying to get into um and it, it was hard to explain to them I, some of them close enough to me like i explained my undocumented status but many of them i just you know said well it's um gonna go to community college instead because i want to save money or whatever bs uh excuse i made up at that moment it was tough this it, and i feel like you know not to add you know, more salt to the wound, but like you, you could have given up and you could have just been like, fuck this. And like, you know, and it's a loose, loose situation. Sometimes it's, this happens a lot to people who go to jail and then they come out and try to do better for their lives. There's so many things that this country and, and our system set up that kind of make people fall. And you could have turned around and said, Hey, I don't fuck this. I don't want to do this anymore. I went to school and, you know, I worked hard and blah, blah, blah. But you didn't. You kind of muscled through to it. And I remember meeting you at Santa Monica College and thinking, this kid's hella smart. And he's kind of a nerd for being like, you know, the Salvadorian kid that hangs out with us. Yeah. And I was I was always very impressed by you. And I thought, you know, and I remember us, and which, which was really like a 
kind of like a weird feeling now that you've talked about how how hard it felt and how you were upset. We used to go to these college trips and we would take people and visit these universities. And we went and visited Berkeley. We sure did. That was actually my first and, time ever on that campus. Like I had gotten into the university, but I had never actually visited the university. I've only seen how. How was that? How did you it feel? Was, okay, Drew. It was. It was again one of those things. Like in my mind, even at Santa Monica College. So it was. It was. You know, this. It was me at community college knowing that first semester being at Santa Monica College, knowing that I did not. Uh, really belong there like i did not work my butt off through high school to go to community college that was my mindset at that moment right i know because you were hanging out with dummies <laughs> it wasn't even like, that I, it was more like <laughs> it was more like i could have been at at uc berkeley at this time and so when we did uh, no I, <laughs> i'm just saying you were hanging out with me because i i don't remember high school and I, the first time that i ever did any work was at santa monica uh, college it was the first time that I got interested in anything and I read and everything. It was Santa Monica College. Yeah. Like, you were hanging out with dummies <laughs> and you belonged in you. Uh, but I, I, I want to go back to this. Like, okay, so your your parents are from... El Salvador. And they came here what time? So, like during the Civil War? Yeah, so my, my dad was the one, the first one of my two parents. My dad was the first one that came to the U.S. Um, in 1982. Um, and there were some other folks, some other family members on my dad's side and on my mom's side that had come before that. And it was during the beginning of the Civil War in El Salvador. So we were, um, my family was trying to escape the Civil War, obviously, um, to, to be able to... Um, Refugees. You know, it, it was a matter of survival. It wasn't even the American dream then. It was like, yeah. it was a matter of survival. If we, if we stay in, the, in El Salvador, you would we would have died. Uh, and my dad tells me these stories of where he came close to dying on a few occasions because of the, what was going on in, in the country. Um, and, and he could not afford to bring his whole family at the same time. So it was first him. He, um, as many immigrants do when they try to get, try to bring the rest of the family to the States, he gathered money. And, and so he brought my mom over and that was really hard because that meant that they both left my brother and I, I have a younger brother, a year and a half younger than me, who we were left with my, uh, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents in El Salvador for about two or three years before my parents, again, had enough money to be able to bring my brother and I into the States. And so my dad went back in 1986 to, to, um, to be able to get my brother and I to come back and be re reunited as a family. Mind you, though, my dad was undocumented. So for him having to Jesus. go back to El Salvador without any papers, it was a risk. It was a risk. And then he was now not only was he trying to get back into the country without any papers. Now he has his two uh, young uh, sons two kids. with him yeah. trying to get into this country. Jesus. Um, and I still remember that experience because I was seven years old. So I have memories of trying to cross the border and kind of like the route that we took. We actually got detained at the border. At, at San Isidro in uh, the Mexican-California uh, border. We got detained. I believe it was maybe like several weeks. I remember it. Like, I remember it being uh, being in a jail cell initially with my dad. It was, it, and again, mind you, I was seven years old, had no idea what was going on, why we were in this place. But we were, I knew what a cell, like, I had in my mind what a cell a jail cell looked like and so i knew that we were somewhere where we were 
being held captive and being held in, in and not let go. And the scariest part of that whole experience was when my my brother and I got separated from my dad. Oh, um, that was really scary because I, I had no idea what was going on. They, they separated the men from the women and the children. So they put us, my, my brother and myself, with the women. Uh, we had no relative other than my dad with us. So when they separated us, we had each other. And that was it. And I remember the women in that jail cell, uh, their, their motherly instinct came out. They knew we were alone and they, they comforted us as best as they could. But it was the scariest. I, I don't remember how we, we you know, slept through the night knowing that, not knowing exactly what was going on, when we were going to be reunited again with my dad and, and let alone my mom who was here in the States. So um, that was the first, that was, a, that was your first memory the United States. That was that was my first memory. Being in a cell, <laughs> and separated from your dad. Yep. Um, Jesus Christ. On, on the lighter side, it was also the first time that I, um, I think, I guess you can call it, I ate American food, and so it was like what they serve in in jail. But I had never tasted anything like it. I, I'm I'm sure looking back at it now, I would think it's gross. But at as a seven year old, those juice boxes that they gave you or those you know these other types of food that i had never tasted before it was good to me but again yeah it, <laughs> like, it's like welcome we were, welcome to like corn syrup and diabetes come on we, we, i was Get naive and, and didn't know exactly but you know uh i'd look back back at that experience and i'm like at, at least we were getting fed i don't know what that experience is like now but um but it was very traumatic to say the least to to go through that and like I said, it was a span of maybe uh, three, maybe up to a month. I can't remember exactly how long we were in there. One, one thing that I think people don't understand, and I think it's a, it's a crucial thing for us to talk about, is that um, people have these ideas that, oh, you know, you know, Trump was, was a horrible person and he put kids in, je- in like cages. But the separating and the putting kids in, in jail cells is not a thing of specifically Trump. It's a thing that Obama did. It's a thing that Reagan did. It's a thing that Clinton. So the Bushes did. And so it's it, it has happened for a very long time. Immigration and the way that we treat immigrants coming in from South American countries and Mexican countries and Central American countries is completely different than what they do with certain other countries. Um, they do it as well with uh, Middle Eastern people. And a lot of people, you know, before they really get to live in America, sometimes fall in the pit where they have to see the first American world through being in a jail cell or being in a detention center or being in like, you know, being hauled around from place to place. And I feel like this is not a thing that was specific to, you know, Trump as much as I don't want to defend him in any ways. I'm saying that a lot of us, a lot of people have to go through this before that. I, I went the reverse way. I was born here and then I was sent to Central America. Right. And then when I came back, I just got on a plane and came back. I never had to go through something like that you had to go through. And imagine being a seven-year-old kid and, you know, having to be stopped at the border. And then your dad goes away. Yeah. And you're like, and then you have your brother. So you, ha- you have to take care of your brother, but you're also a child. Yep. So it's like a, it's, this is the first uh, things of it. So I'm sorry you have to go through that. And, and that's amazing that. So this country, from the moment you got here, was like, ah, then. 
it, it's it, it's funny you mentioned that because yeah i mean that that's definitely been my experience here of being uh the other like it was it was definitely not uh open arms you're welcome to new, your new home you know it was more like uh you get criminalized as soon as you are trying to come into this country uh, but folks don't know why it is that my family made that trek they don't know that we were trying to escape a civil war um, and and now as an adult and having gone to through to college and learned about the history of Latin America and specifically about the US involvement in some of, of, of the countries that we're from and specifically in my case the El Salvador uh, and and what the US the, the hand that the U.S. had in the, the war, the civil war that happened in El Salvador is the reason why my family left, right? And, and so it's, it's this like um, really this thing that nobody knows as to why it is that some of these families were fleeing El Salvador other than they wanted to come to this country for a better life. But to, if you learn your history, you understand that there's more than that, that the U.S. was involved and in in a lot of that push for immigrants coming to this country but then the u.s uh doesn't necessarily didn't necessarily open their arms to us when we needed them there's a lot of things that our government has done to people of color and then as a resort or as a you know result of our actions or inactions we're being criminalized by the same government that created the sort of reason why we did those things so the civil wars and everything that was happening in Central America, there was this whole vacuum of power. And the U.S. wanted to make sure that their interests were being held right. In Guatemala, for, for instance, um, they bombed a whole town. The CIA bombed a whole town to get rid of people that were sort of a stronghold where people were just trying to rebel against government interests and they were taking lands. And to this day, there's, you know, there's people that have been murdered and put in pits because they were trying to take land that they were selling to companies american companies to grow juice stuff and you know what amal used to be like a juice like capital they used to have a bunch of juices and suddenly coca-cola is everywhere and el salvador i mean i think they were afraid of communism coming down there and so you know there was a lot of things that they didn't know about el salvador but they put their finger in that and caused this vacuum where the people were the collateral people were being killed because you had to go one way or the other way and it was like the people in the middle, they had nothing to do with it. They were just trying to live. And so that also then went down to Panama, then went down to other countries, then went down to Colombia and so forth. And so I think it's something that is a disease that keeps happening. And then why would you be surprised that people don't want to live there anymore? Right. You know, they come to America because they're like, at least we're not going to die over there. But then you come over here and it's like they get mistreated. Sure. But before the dreamers, you got pushed into this world of I'm going to work really hard. My parents came here. What did your dad My do? My dad, uh, he's worked in restaurants most of the years that he's lived here in the U.S. And then my mom's been a housekeeper since she came to the U.S. So your dad has done with most people that come down here. They either do some hard labor or they work in kitchens. Mm -hmm. And um, I've tasted your dad's food, so I know <laughs> that he knows what he's doing. And he's been doing it for a very long time. Sure has. Um, and he has a finesse about it. Um, Here's a parent that came as an immigrant working in a kitchen and has two kids and he instills and your mom instills in your head you need to succeed and go there. So you go to college, 
You go to high school, you do it, you get accepted. But now you're at Santa Monica College. <laughs> so how is it? And I remember having this conversation with you at Santa Monica College. We went on a trip or something and you were telling me like, you know, I don't know if I will be able to stay in this country. Like, I feel like I'm doing all this work. And this is at Santa Monica. You're telling yeah, me this. I, was... I feel like I'm doing all this work and I might not be able to succeed. And, you know, I might get deported. Like, I, it's an uncertainty all the time. Yeah. And I and I went home with that thought in my head. Like, imagine being having. And I told my mom this. So I was like, I, I said, you know, like I have a friend, and, and she's like, yeah. Imagine not being certain. And my mom was already a citizen by then, but she was like, imagine not being able to know if today will be the day that you have to get deported. And that's crazy. Yeah, definitely. I think that was uh, the fear that many of immigrants, even now to this day, is this idea of. Uh, the reality of living in the shadows, uh, the reality of, of not being able to fully live a complete life here as human beings. And so I remember, and it wasn't so much like uh, myself like being deported, it was more like my, my sense of security and that came from my parents. So I remember every day that my parents would go to work, there was this fear that they would not be able to come back to, to us. Um, I remember days when my mom would come home late from maybe a, cleaning somebody's house and I would be out on the balcony on our, you know, this four-story building that we used to live in. I would be on the, on the balcony looking down the street and, and seeing if I could see her because there was this fear in the back of my mind, always this constant fear that maybe this was the day that she would not be coming back. Maybe this was the day that my dad would not be able to come back to us because there were the deportations that were happening in those days and that have been, been happening uh, historically in this country. And so um, it, was, it was definitely a fear. And then going into Santa Monica College, still undocumented, I still was living with that fear of my family uh, not having uh, a sense of security in this country um, and, and still living in the shadows. And at the same time, trying to you know succeed in whatever way that i could and for me it was it was going to school it was getting an education and i remember too when when we were in college it was the and not to date ourselves but it was the time of 187 of the proposition that was trying to label or target immigrants and it was uh stupid ass pete wilson was the governor then and so you know being in santa monica college and then having to go to these protests. I remember you went to those two, like having to go to those protests against 187. It's it just, I feel like, how do you not give up and not get beaten <laughs> down by all this? Yeah, it, that's a really good question. I asked myself that looking back. I, I feel like, I I don't know. Uh, part of me, you know, when those those obstacles, when I hit those walls, when I hit those, those you know, like <laughs> head on, those walls, those obstacles, I did want to give up. I did, in, in a sense, want to say to myself, like, okay, um, you might get deported. Um, you're not going to be able to continue an education, so might as well just, like, find a job where they pay you cash and just, like, try to survive as uh, you know, day by day. But in the back of my mind, I always knew, like, I, I had it in me to become and to make, my, to make myself into somebody that I knew I could become. And I mean by that, like reaching a dream that my parents had instilled in me of, of us, you know, getting an education, even though they did not themselves experience those obstacles of 
getting an education, they they had, uh, they were, you know, perceiving that, pursuing that uh, elusive American dream, right? We go back to that idea of the American dream. They were they were in some ways like instilling on us to to pursue that as well, whatever that was. But I, you know, in the back of my mind, I was, uh, I thought for me that would be doing well in school. And somewhere along the way, that hard work would be would be rewarded. Like that was something that was instilled in me, like in school, like you said, like my teachers told me that and and my parents to to a degree told me that. But nobody tells you as an undocumented immigrant like or student, uh, here are the obstacles you're you're facing and and here are the many things that are stacked up against you. Um, But somehow you continue to to tell yourself that some change is coming or somebody's going to help you along the way or um, if you try hard enough somebody's going to notice you and 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 want to help you and 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 make your your dreams come true like i i felt that that was something that was uh driving me in a sense of wanting to to continue my education is like this hope that things would change this hope that that things would get better and, and this hope that my hard work and, and wanting to, you know, be a productive citizen of society, right? To be that, that person that gives back, like that would be rewarded in, at some point. And I, and I think, you know, to, to speak on that, I mean, it's amazing that, that there was a turning point to that because then you ended up at Loyola, Marymount. And that's not also the easiest school to get in. No. Uh, I mean, a lot of school nowadays, a lot of schools are not easy to get in anymore. Uh, I remember there was schools and colleges in L.A. that all you had to do is have the, a, you know, a, a checkbook and, you know, and show up. And, and now, you know, it doesn't work that way because education is becoming so important. And everybody's being told from the get go, you know, the American dream, get an education, the American dream, get an education. But, you know, it's not it's not only stacked upon them, but it's like if I gave somebody a logical option. All right. You're going to work really hard. And there's a 50 chance, 50, 50, maybe 60, 40 chance that I can take that away from you. Somebody would be like, no, I'm not doing that. Why would I work hard for you to 50, 50 or 60, 40, take it away from me? Right. And that's what immigrants have to deal with i think it's even worse than that it's not a 60 60 40 or 50 50 it's worse than that it's a the constant fear the constant hiding and there's a lot of you know i always go back to this movie called um there's two movies el norte which you know shows about how people in guatemala fled the civil war and came to america and all the bad shit that happened coming here and then there's another movie called la ciudad where you know no matter what happens you get lost in this in these cities in this world and then you just end up getting deported or you end up going back and then nothing like you're probably worse off than you were before because now you're going back to a country that you don't really know right that you don't have any connections to and half of the people are dead and you go into some places where there is a lot of violence you know um so what was the turning point to get you to lmu so uh that's uh that that was the, the to speak to like this hope of like you know somebody's out there who is going to help you out and if you just continue the hard work and and i also realized if i also told my story 
that folks would want to listen and would want to help me. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, by, by telling my story of, 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 you know, what it was like for my family to flee El Salvador because of the Civil War and, and, my, and the, the goal in, 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 in me to want to get an education and to, to want to go to a university, I felt like somebody was going to, needed to hear that and needed to hear that there was more folks like me, more students in my situation. Uh, not that that's the only narrative out there, but that, that is one of the, the narratives of undocumented students, right? We, we strive to do the best we can in our school and learn the language as fast as we can and, and talk, you know, and, and speak and read and write the best English possible. And so, like, I, that was something that, again, drove me to want to, to also tell my story and to tell other folks, like, this is happening and this is a reality for many, many folks like me, even though it was also a fear in the back of my mind that, you know, what if somebody listens to my story and, and, and you know, tries to deport me or says, I, I you know, I'm going to call um, INS or ICE on you, right? Um, but I think that still was something that um, I wanted to, to meet folks that I knew were doing the work in the community that were doing the work to try to help uh, students in my situation. So when I was at Santa Monica College, I um, got in contact with a community organization that uh, said that they would help my family um, actually try to get our papers, to get our, our permanent residency in the U.S. And through the lawyer at this nonprofit organization, um, I was able to meet a professor at LMU. Um, this professor at LMU, um, yeah, ironically enough, and, and maybe it was serendipity and just like the stars aligned, was also is also Salvadoreño and um, a math professor at LMU. Um, he was the one that that I uh, was able to to speak to and, and to tell my story, and we shared a lot of similarities in the sense that like we have a shared um, country of origin and our families. Uh, similar culture and so he told me that he at LMU had started a scholarship a full tuition scholarship for undocumented students and he, before I had a, um, uh, heard and talked to him I had never heard of LMU I had never been to the campus <laughs> um, but I as soon as I heard that there was a, a scholarship out there that I could potentially get I was like sign me up what do I need to do um, where's the application right and so he told me about the scholarship and he said that they had only been able to offer it to one student before me. So the, the, the scholarship was in his, you know, um, infancy. Yes, exactly. And so like, and I knew that I was not the only one going to be fighting for this money. Right. Yeah, um, and course. so uh, as an undocumented uh, student, I was uh, eligible for this full tuition scholarship. Um, but of course, I had to have the grades, which I knew I had. I had to have the, all these other requirements that I knew I had to apply for it. And I did. And out of the pool of however many students, I was uh, selected to get a full tuition scholarship as an undocumented student to attend a private uh, Jesuit university here in Los Angeles. That was the only way that I was able to continue my education. When I graduated from SMC, if, if that was not an option of being able to, if that was on the table and being able to transfer, 
I don't know what I would have done. It, it would have been high school over again, right? Not knowing what my next step was going to be. Having a degree from Santa Monica College, but then not being able to continue onto a four-year university. But um, even, if, even if you had a degree, like you would go and get a job and show them your degree, you're still not a citizen. Right. So it'd be really hard to get a exactly. job. Um, so then you went to LMU, which is a religious school. Yep. And um, I guess let me ask you, how is that? Uh, what do you identify yourself as? Uh, in terms of uh, different, in terms of religion, I think I grew up uh, Catholic. And so uh, I know kind of like, you know, that the that, way that they yes. are. Yeah. So I knew yeah. that, that that aligned with what I knew of my experience. Yeah. But I was also like in, in at that time in my life really not a religious person really not had not been a practicing catholic right um but i also like at that point in my life i was also in struggling with my uh coming to terms with my own sexuality so i knew as a gay latino a gay salvadoreño going to a religious catholic, catholic university <laughs> Um, yeah. that might, again, that might not align well with, with, yeah. with how yeah. I was, um, what I was dealing with. But again, I was still in, in, you know, kind of, I would say, um, wrestling with that and, and coming to terms with that, um, part of my identity. Um, and yeah. so I think, uh, the whole time that I was at LMU, it was something that, um, I did not disclose to anybody. Um, right. Nobody knew um, even after I graduated from LMU, but I knew like that in, in my mind, religion and especially Catholicism and, and Christianity, like, and, and being, uh, gay were not, um, could not coexist, coexist. Right. Yeah. And so that yeah. was definitely a struggle, but I think I, that wasn't so much, uh, a part of, 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 my reality while I was at LMU, I think the other piece to being a Latino student and, and a brown student at LMU is this idea that um, you are at this uh, prestigious university or this, this elite university where uh, you don't see too many of, of people that are like you there. So then yeah. it becomes harder to create um, a sense of community and, and, a, and build um, a sense of belonging on a campus, on a university campus where there aren't too many of other folks that look like you there. So that was, I think, I think that was the, the maybe the bigger struggle for me was navigating yeah. university life where there weren't too many of us. There. And I think to, it, it probably was a crazier struggle because for a long time, if you're from LA, you know that LMU is considered like a really white school yes. uh and then there's the catholic part right and the only people i knew from lmu were these um really pretty white girls that <laughs> I, used to, I used to hang out with uh but <laughs> uh but i never knew anybody else who went to lmu and then like you know my brother went through the bosco techs and the bosco school system which are also religious um you know I guess Jesuit schools and what have you, their high schools. And so his uh, trajectory was to go either to Pepperdine or LMU. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure if he really, if that's what he was looking for, but he ended up going to Cal Poly for 
uh, construction engineering and he you know because that's that's another thing he wanted to do but I also thought about it when he said like you know these are the only other schools that I could that they're pushing us to go to but I could imagine when he said that I was thinking like why would you go to that school you'd be like a you know you stick out and then I was thinking damn Will went to LMU <laughs> I'm sure he fucking stuck out <laughs> yeah. and I'm sure that like you know you had more pressure you know to graduate because you had a you know scholarship and whatever so your identity probably had to take a back seat to the pressure cooker that going to that school was you would think so you would think so but and, l- let me tell you something about um i feel like what drives you to um to spaces where you find other folks who are struggling with the same thing and i think that's what helped me at lmu is that even though there were a few of us uh and by us i mean you know brown students latino students um there was a few of us we gravitated towards each other so i i knew like whatever organization was out there that had other brown students in it i wanted to be there and so for me that meant um service organizations that were um primarily latinos in that organization that were helping out in the community and that's how i was able to kind of uh, spark uh, this interest spark uh, in me of wanting to become a teacher. That's when it initially started oh, wow. was uh, joining this organization that would help um, uh, a local middle school uh, in an after school program. Uh, but they were that particular specific organization was um, purposely going to a middle school where there were, you know, uh, students of color. So I felt like gravitating towards these organizations and, and later, also, I joined a Latino-based fraternity while I was at LMU. So that further helped to create a, a greater sense of, of belonging. And I feel like it, it becomes much harder to do so at institutions where they're, you know, white majority yeah. institutions. Um, but you do it. Like, it's a matter of survival for us, honestly. It's either that yeah. or you... Um, you maybe <laughs> assimilate let's put it that way assimilate yeah. to the white culture which i had no intentions of doing at all i f- <laughs> i feel like there's a generation that wanted to assimilate and i think our generation was not that generation <laughs> i think we were we were kind of in a way where like we were attacked so much that we were like you know we were like rage against the machine like fuck you i won't do what you tell me and I don't need to be like this and I don't need to act this way and I don't need to speak a certain way and I don't need to pretend that I'm not Latino or, or be embarrassed right. or tell people like, oh no, I'm Spanish. Like, <laughs> and, and you know what? If you identify as Spanish and you don't want to tell people that you're Mexican, that's cool too. I'm not here to judge you. I'm just saying I didn't feel like I needed to and I think, Will, you feel the same I way. Definitely like, I definitely do. I feel like... Like I told people <laughs> I was like Central American and South American and I was a mixture of... And I didn't know what Afro-Latino was. That was a thing that I, into my later adulthood, I'd learn. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm an Af- I belong to some group, you know? <laughs> because before that, I was just like, I look like this because my daddy's black. My grandfather's black, okay? And people are like, oh, no, you know? Yeah. Um, but I get it, you know? You walk into a place and you're like, where are the brown people at? Right, and then right. And you kind of get And that. it's one of those things where I, there was no way to hide my brown skin. Right. There, you, I, I could definitely not disclose the fact that I was undocumented. That was a choice that I yeah. made. Um, I also could 
I, you know, in, in during the time at LMU, like I told you, I was still coming to terms with my sexuality. So I could also hide that part, part of me as well, but definitely yeah. not my skin. That was something that was in your face. And you saw that first thing, especially when you're like oh. six feet tall and that too, like and people can if people can see a six feet tall brown guy coming at them. You can't hide that. You can't just hide it. So, and put a hoodie. <laughs> so I had no choice, but to yeah, say you to had myself, to do it. like you, I, right my my brown skin's in front of you like you got you're gonna know and learn about who i am and yeah. where i come from um but at the same time i also need to survive these years that i'm here at this university so let me find other folks that are gonna be on that on that journey with me that's the thing about immigrant kids and people who grew up the immigrant lifestyle is we're survivors we have to learn how to deal with that one is we don't know the language and we have to learn the language and you're not one of us and this and that and you didn't and so it's like there's such a struggle of like you know being able to speak spanish being able to be from this world being able to work in that world being able to learn this stuff and some of us like when i got to college just learning our history not the history we were told but our history and figuring out that like shit man the u.s really fucked us in south america and central america and like now nah, that's why we're here and you know like having my mom tell me that like my aunt got kidnapped because you know people were like hey these students can't be rebelling and stuff like that and then they just kidnapped her out of the blue and then they like threw her off or like beat her up or whatever but it was like one of those things where like our our families didn't come here just because they were like oh my god there's like rivers of gold and you know there's gonna be all kinds of great shit like who wants to come to a country where they're being mistreated and told bad right. things about themselves um because they're trying to escape death right <laughs> that's that's a different story when you're like okay if we stay here we die so if we go over there we'll get yelled at and treated badly but at least we won't be dead and that's a that's a huge change yeah but um i wanted to ask you about something because this was sort of a a, um, a different moment in my life and you know we spent a lot of time together we were in college group um we were in um in a latino club um of course you went and found the, all the brown people in Santa Monica. <laughs> I sure did. And, <laughs> and so we used to go to these college trips and whatever. Um, and we, were, we went on a lot of trips together. And we actually hung out outside of school a lot with another group of friends. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot about you and your family. And, you know, I remember going to picking you up at, you know, on Normandy and 3rd at that apartment building you guys used to live. Um, and then later on, we kind of lost touch. And then we started kind of talking again. And you invited me to a party. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what this party was. <laughs> and then everybody's like, as I come in, everybody's like, oh, have you spoken to Will? And I was like, no, what's going on? And then, you know, everybody's like, oh, no, he'll tell you. And then it was kind of <laughs> like, I was thinking, like, what's going on? I was like, oh, this motherfucker better not be dying. And he told me to come to this party. <laughs> and he's going to tell me he's going to die. This is fucked up. And, you know, previously to that, my mom had had cancer. And that was another scare that we had in our family. So to me, it was like, oh, I don't want to hear about somebody else getting cancer. And then you pulled me to the backyard and it was just me and you. And you were like, hey, I got to tell you something. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> this dude's going to die. And you had just got a house in South Central. Did, yeah, with my parents. A nice craftsman nice house, right? Yeah. Does your parents live there yep, now? They're still there. Yeah. Oh, man. And I was just like, what the hell is going to happen? What is he going to tell me? And then you proceeded to tell me that you were gay and that you were coming at. And it was one of these things where like such <laughs> weight came off of me 
And I was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, it's like you didn't have to, because I was terrified. I was like, oh shit, you know, this guy's ill or something. Or like, you know, I was also hoping like it was money. Like, I hope you guys asked me for money because I could tell them no, I don't have it. <laughs> um, but uh, I felt really honored. And I also felt like it was kind of, you know, like I felt bad that you had to go through that whole process to that. You know, having gay relatives, especially some that are really close to me. You know, we never had those conversations. We just kind of knew yeah. and we never talked about it. But the fact that like you had to, you know, do it in the way you did it. And, you know, I remember you were a little nervous about it. I felt really bad that I put you in that position as a friend because, you know, like maybe we never had that conversation. But two, it's like I also felt really honored that you like selected to tell me about something in your life. And I helped, and I kept that with me for a very long time. You know, so like, you know, you were the first person that ever came out like that to me. And so I was like, oh, that, I'm, I'm, I felt super honored, you know. And then, the, you know, the more that I have and the friends and everything and everybody who knows me, like, you know, I have all kinds of friends and I don't choose one or whatever. Um, I've always been roommates with either lesbian or gay. And so to me, it's like that's just people that I know. Right. Um, the only thing I don't like is stupid people or people who are dirty. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't clean your shit, then you need to not live with me. Um, but I was very honored by that. And I felt like that was the first time that I had experienced that. And I thank you for sort of including me in your life in that part. Well, I guess I, 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 I think I need to tell you I'm sorry that you thought that I was dying. I, yeah, I think this it is was, the first time I've ever heard you tell me this. So it was very like nerve wracking. Yeah, it was very, very nerve wracking. I was like, I don't have any money to give him and I hope he's not going to jail or like I got to bail him out or something and he's going to ask me for the money or like, oh, if he tells me he's going to fucking die, like I don't want to hear that shit because like, you know, there's so many people dying around us and so I was so nervous that yeah. you were going to tell me like, I'm sick and I have a month to live and I'm like, fuck, this is what this party's at. It's a setup. And I chose to come out later in life. Um, I wish that I would have done it when I was younger, but because of my, you know, environment at home or um, at school or uh, in society in general, I was not mentally prepared to do that. So I feel like when I told my my close friends, uh, and I consider you my close friend, like I knew like it was that the right time to do so like it it, it had to happen that way um and i i'm glad that you felt honored in 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 being you know somebody that I confided in in because i felt like i in that process of coming out i knew that the world in the the larger society was going to be against me right and so i wanted to yeah. build a network of folks I wanted to basically know who had my back and who your community exactly who was in my on, yeah. in, on my side and who would you know uh, march with me when I needed them to and so like yeah and in coming out to different people in my life and, and especially close friends like that was my the purpose in doing so there was the fear yeah. always like uh, yeah. that they might not be ready to accept that but at the same time, I, I also knew that the other pe the other side of that was that they were and that they were ready to accept me and they were ready to and they were uh, yeah would continue loving me and support me. So correct. And it wasn't. And, and I'm gonna correct myself. It wasn't that I, you should have told me earlier. Is that you should have 
told me that you weren't going to die right away, so then I wouldn't have freaked out. I think that yes. was it. I think I was if just I like, knew, so if nervous. If I knew and, that that's what you were thinking, and, I would have. And what made it worse is that somebody said, oh, go outside. He's going he's gonna to come out and talk to you. And then I had to wait out. And then you were like, oh, hey, come on. And then there was like a whole thing. And it was like, all oh, quiet and shit. <laughs> I was like, fuck, this guy's really going to die. And <laughs> but I'm, I, you know, I don't know when you found out and when you did it. And you told me when you were supposed to tell me. And, you know, you have your own time and when you feel comfortable saying stuff to me. I do remember you, you were like, we're trying to apologize because we had slept in the same room together when we were on trips. <laughs> and, and I was like, who gives a fuck about any of that? Like, I don't care, man. Like, I just want to know that you're okay. And you're not going to die. And right. I ain't got no money to give you. So no. Um, but I mean, I'm here to support you and whatever you need to do. And I think that was like, I just felt really honored. And I was like, cool. And then when I came out, I was like, Hey, did he talk to you? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> And I was like, how come you guys didn't warn me? Like, I, I thought he was going to die. And they're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, it is well. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then, you know, I, I got to know you from there and, and a little bit different. And I, you know, I felt honored that I was part of that. And I, you know, and it seemed like the most part, most of your friends were there to support yeah, you. Yeah, I, I am. You didn't lose anybody, I, did you? No, not that I can think back to. I think. If, if there were any folks like that, I probably cut them off way earlier in my life, right? So I, yeah. I knew the folks that were still in my life at that point, um, you know, would, would I, love I, me no matter what. And I don't think we, we hung out with savage people that were like, oh, gay this and gay that. Right. And we, I don't, I don't well, think that was our thing. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, people. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember anybody like making definitely gay comments. Either. Yeah, I think the the group that we hanged out with, you know, we were poor kids from South Central and from, you know, Midtown and Koreatown, but we didn't act like like animals. We respected everybody. But I think also we were we had been around so many people that we had grown up with everybody and at a certain point you kinda just you're okay with everybody and, you know you're just trying to make it. You're trying to succeed and survive. Um so with that said, how how was it being a gay male as a teacher is it is there things that conflict with what you have to deal with sometimes with you know academics and how you know nowadays kids are a little bit more free to have pronouns kids are a little right. bit more free to go into bathrooms that are gender neutral but when you started teaching and when we were in college that wasn't a thing you know there was still a lot of homophobia oh definitely and I, and to to just give you uh, an idea like my own process um, uh, coming to again coming out as a as a gay educator that was in itself another process right um, it took me maybe uh, it was my seventh or eighth year of teaching I can't remember when it was but it was that long into my teaching career that I, I decided that this was something that I wanted to share um, uh, fully with my students because up to that point I knew that I wasn't completely being uh, the best teacher that I could be for my students because I wasn't being my complete self, if that makes sense. Um, I was, because I was not being um, uh, genuinely myself and 100% myself, I felt like I was always, I was shortchanging my students in, in, in letting them see me completely for who I was. 
And so that process of, of deciding to come out was a very powerful process for me because I knew not only would I from then on be able to, to come to, uh, to class every day and, and be my authentic 100% self, but I knew that by me being up there and, and being that um, maybe the, the only person that they knew in their life that was gay, um, maybe that offered them a different idea of or started breaking stereotypes of what they in their mind have been taught about what gay people look like, what they sound like, what they can be and what they can do. And so I felt like it was more than just um, me just you know being my authentic self. It also was a matter of representation for, for my students and especially those students at that age, at that very um, critical age in their development where they're trying to definitely uh, figure out who they are and their, their identity and, and maybe struggling with, uh, with their own sexuality to know that there was somebody there that was out and was um, supportive of whatever it is that they were going through. Um, I felt like that was, in the end, um, what drove me to want to do it and to do it every year from then on. And so at every school that I've taught at, at every, every year that I, that I start my school year, it is something that I share about myself because again, I can't see myself being uh, the, my authentic self without uh, being 100% who I am in front of my students. You know, that's amazing that you said that because um, I have a friend who, when he came out, he said, it's almost like finally completing the circle and now you're whole. Right. Now you get to be your true self. Yep. And so a lot of the fact that like people have to hide their their identity and who they really are or like i think it's liberate it was liberating for them to to feel that way so i can imagine for you like how heavy that held yourself because one you want to be yourself but two you're educating and when you do things in education especially with kids it's like there's so many restrictions and rules and yeah and eyes on you you know everybody's like oh look at him and what he's doing and you know like uh, you know parents will take the wrong turn and and not think clearly about somebody's identity they'll just say i don't want my kids being exposed to this stuff where you know kids are being exposed to shit all the time but when children have a representation of something that you know that they feel that they connect with it changes everything if a child is dealing with issues of sexuality and to have someone who they respect because most students whether they say it or not they respect their teachers you know especially the teachers care to be represented in that field they're like oh okay that that's somebody who who's just like me and they're okay yeah so then i can be okay and that's beautiful i mean imagine if you had a gay kid in your class and now he felt like he can breathe a little bit easier right and i i also do want to backtrack and say that um those fears of making that decision to come out were definitely there and present like uh, I think it wasn't so much that my students would necessarily not accept it. I think it was more afraid of families and in particular a lot of my Latino families um, and because you know having grown up in the Latino culture and 
and religion being a huge part of that, I knew that that would be probably my biggest obstacle. Um, and then even before that, just making sure that I was in a safe environment, at a work environment, where my administration was supportive of me doing this and my colleagues were as well. I knew that if I had that in place, then I could move forward with, um, with whatever came my way. So I, I, I don't want to make it seem like that that is everywhere. I wish it was a, um, a safe space for all queer educators out there, but it may not be, right? Uh, you may not be at a school where it, you have that support of your administration or your colleagues. So um, I luckily I did have that and luckily I was able to to um, work in, a, in, in schools where that was the case. But I did have my obstacles and I did have pushback and uh, from both students and families. But at the end of the day, what drove me to want to do it and drove me to do it every year was that that impact that I knew I would have on my students, in particular those students who are the most vulnerable in our schools and, and those are the, our LGBTQ uh, um, students who are, um, you know, you know the statistics, a higher, higher risk of dropping out, higher risk of suicide rates, higher risk of all these horrible things, right? And so, like you said, you touched upon an idea of mental health. And if they feel like that they are, if they see somebody who they see them, their self reflected in doing well and, and, and thriving and succeeding, that they could also start um, picturing that for themselves. It's representation is very important. And I'll tell you why. Um, as an as an Afro-Latino and meeting more people that are Afro-Latino and talking to more people that are afro I felt like I was vindicated, you know? Uh, the anti-blackness in our community uh, runs hand-in-hand hand with our anti-gayness and anti-trans and anti-lesbian, you know? Because I feel like our community can switch really fast and, you know, it's, you know, Salvadorians or Latino culture hasn't been that supportive of gay community of the lesbian community of the trans community specifically the trans community even worse so it's it's really hard to to go around life and not see other people that look like and when you finally do you feel like oh yeah that's, this is this is who i am like it's okay and you know being a salvadorian male who's gay must come with a lot of you know stress as well and implications you know not just like you know you know you know our your group and your community is accept you for who you are and you have really good friends i mean you know you know that but everybody in our community doesn't feel the same way yeah. you know and so i feel like that's such that's such another that's another burden that, that you as a as will wilfredo had to deal with yeah. you know you had to deal with the immigrant part, the not knowing if you were going to be here or there, the education part, and now you brought in this other part. And so, um, luckily, I mean, you know, thank God you have a great family and friends, and I'm sure that everybody who's around you, whether they struggled with your identity or not, they were there to support you. Yeah, and continue to do so, yeah. After you were teaching, you ended up in Oregon. I did, yeah. So I taught. I taught for ten years in LA at a, like I said, independent charter school, straight out of my undergrad. And then 
after my 10th year of teaching, I moved to Oregon and lived there for six years. Where in Oregon? I uh, moved to Corvallis, Oregon. So that's like uh, many folks know Portland, Oregon as one of the main cities in Oregon. And it's about an hour and a half drive south of Portland. I feel like people only know Portland. Yeah, Oregon. pretty much. And yeah. maybe it may be, be. And if you're a sports fan, maybe Beaverton, because that's where Nike's yep. at. Um, <laughs> but Corvallis, Corvallis. OK, so I mean, Portland in some ways has been a liberal city but you know now that we're you know we're finding out all these proud boys have been there and there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment there how was corvallis corvallis yeah so how was that it was you know um before moving out there i had never been to oregon in my life i uh had never i mean i've seen pictures of it um but uh the reason why i ended up moving out there was um uh, towards the end of my tenure of teaching here in LA, I met my partner and he was um, studying his, getting his master's degree out here in Southern California. And he's originally, he grew up in Portland, Oregon, actually. And so this is oh, how okay. I ended up in Oregon is um, he graduated from his master's program and got offered a job at the university that his undergrad um, uh, at Oregon State University. And that is where um, uh, Corvallis is located is the home of Oregon State University. So he got a the job. Ducks, right? It is not the ducks. You got the, ah, the wrong one. Which, it's the beavers. Which was this? The beavers. Oh, okay. Oregon State beavers. And then you have Eugene, which is further south. And that's where the Oregon ducks are located. But um, so we lived in, in Corvallis, Oregon. Again, that's where he uh, got his degree from. And he got offered a job at the university. And so I decided to um i needed to change okay. <laughs> uh <laughs> 10 years in in the, at the same school and 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 teaching uh middle school math and and doing all that seemed to be like a, a pretty um you know convenient moment to kind of you know make a shift in my life and so we ended up moving out there uh first year that i was there was really um hard for me Wait, how long how long had you guys been together when you guys made this movie? Uh, we had been together for maybe about a year, a little over a year. And you put up, and you, yeah. and you took the bold move. I did, I did, you, yeah. You followed a boy to Oregon. <laughs> Look at you. Is he is he Latino? He is. He is uh, part Cubano and part, part Hondureño. Oh shit! Yeah. And they ended up in Portland. And they ended up in That's Portland. Crazy. Yeah. He was born in, in Miami though, uh, so his family oh, he has okay. roots in Miami. And then that makes more sense. Move to the West Coast. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm like Cuban and, and <laughs> Cuban and Portland. But That's crazy. You know, going back to this idea, like I had never been to Oregon before, and so that first year was definitely rough. I mean, um, rough in a sense. Was of it like, the trees? Um, <laughs> just weather-wise, I experienced yes. the, my first ever snowstorm. It is not LA. It is definitely not LA. Uh, for experienced my first snowstorm ever. Um, I also was able to see the changes of the season. So it wasn't like perpetual sunshine all the time, you know? Um, but more than, more than that, it was, it was hard being away from my family and being away from LA and all the diversity that LA has to offer. Right. In terms of like, yeah. not just people, but food, right. I miss, miss food for six years and I miss 
you know, all those. Um, what did What did you eat over there in Corvallis? I, I mean, there was, you know, places where you can find, uh, especially in Corvallis. So mind you, Corvallis, again, like the, the home of Oregon State University. So it's considered a college town. And yeah. in that sense, it is, um, it has more than maybe other small towns have to yeah. offer. So you have to cater to international students and, and professors who are coming from different parts of the world and different parts of the country to teach there, right? So there were, you know, restaurants here and there that had, nice. but they were slim pickings to say the least. And so, yeah. and, and once you, you know, you went through that whole list, it was pretty much the same, starting all over again. So there weren't too many things to choose from. They're like, we have a Baja Fresh. <laughs> and like, that's, your, that's your Latino one. And we have some Asian food right. over here and some other stuff. So, yeah. I mean, it was it was tough in that sense of like just missing home. Right. And not I had never what, been. What away. did you miss? Definitely the, the seeing a lot of brown folks. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, but what food? Oh, what food, food specifically, did you miss? I, I mean, I'm pupusas. from El Salvador, so pupusas were definitely something that I. Yeah, that I there was no pupusas place. over there. You know, uh, funny you mentioned that. You know how I told you, I tell you each time, like when I get into a situation where it's new, it's challenging, I, and you yeah. gravitate and you find spaces. I so, found. So you found the one I person that made the one. Seriously, Drew, the one Salvadoreña who makes pupusas till this day at the Corrales um, Farmers Market, and it is. Oh, when shit. I tell you it is one of the most popular stands, I'm not kidding you. I cannot, I could understand. And so, like when I when I heard and and not only heard, but I had to see it for myself. You know, we became friends real quick, and she knew who I was. <laughs> and in fact, like we started talking about. It. And of course, whenever I, you know, meet somebody um, who makes Salvadoran food, I have to know whether or not they're from El Salvador. Like that is yeah. my, you know, litmus test, yeah. right? And so found yeah. out that she's from El Salvador and we spoke about where we come from and our families. And so, you know, from day one, we had that connection and and, um, and she she provided that fix for me while I was away from So, from so you, you, anywhere you go, you put on your <laughs> magnet on and you're like, where are all the beaners at? And I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go there. And then you find this group. And so you found the one Pupuseta yep. lady the only one and in, Corvallis, in Corvallis, in the Beaver uh, the <laughs> University. <Yep. laughs> um, all right. So, so how was it? How I mean, you know, you're in this town, you're getting your I'm assuming your master's. Yeah. So when I moved to you're getting your master's, yeah. did you have to deal with any, you know, microaggressions? Uh, were you out as gay or were you, you know, the brownness, of course, they're going to know that you're Salvadoran, but, but so were you getting any pushback from a place that doesn't normally deal with a lot of brown skins and a lot of gender differences? I, I think um, at this point in my life as a, uh, as an adult, I, again, having been in, in a teacher for 10 years, I feel like I had the experience to speak from so i wasn't afraid anymore to kind of like hide any part of myself and so when when i moved to oregon i had it in my mind that my first year there i would go back to school and finish something that i had started in la but never finished and that was my master's so first year that i was out there i applied to oregon state university to their master's um, of science in math education program and got in and got accepted and and was very very much 
in my cohort maybe one of two students of color in that that graduate cohort and so you know that i again you guys became friends <laughs> we became friends but you know in those in those classes and in those spaces especially because not only was i um you know uh, an out queer educator and uh, Latino, brown student, all of that. But I also, you know, came with this experience of having taught uh, already. And so like um, a lot of the students in my cohort were coming out of, grad, uh, of their undergrad and wanting to become teachers, didn't have that experience. And so they, I feel like um, it gave me an opportunity to kind of share that with them of what it is like for um, educators of color to be in, in the K-12 system and be teachers and what kind of obstacles we face so that they can be better informed as educators when they go into the profession, right? I think we do a disservice, or at least I remember being in some of those education classes, we do a disservice to pre-service teachers who, um, especially teachers, pre-service teachers of color who don't know exactly what they're up against when they go into a, the, whatever school district that they're teaching at. Um, and what it's like to be a, a staff of color in, especially when I, you know, I, I definitely felt that, that, that idea of being different and, and being the other in a primarily white community that is Corvallis. So, um, but I also felt like it was also an experience where I could offer other folks, um, like I said, a different narrative. Uh, breaking those stereotypes and, and breaking that that um, whatever you know notions they have of what a queer educator looks like or what a Latino math teacher looks like, you know um, that that that's how I approach that. And even though like yes, you face microaggressions and you face these kind of questions that are in your mind idiotic, right? And but you also like kind of face that with a sense of like at least you know grace. I, at least you know how i am like yeah my patience and 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 yes definitely yeah. a sense of you're, grace. you're you you're much more eloquent than i am <laughs> and so i would i would tell people to fuck off <laughs> <laughs> but I, I that would be my graduate program <laughs> fuck you sir <laughs> but i think that, um, that also made me it made me stand out and so i know that um i wasn't even done halfway through my program my graduate program when I got offered a job at the school district to teach. They they didn't even know what school they were going to put me at. They just knew that they needed somebody like me in their school district and I needed to be in their schools as well. So I, I, I think it benefited them to have someone come into their program to be a student while other students who had never taught to deal with somebody who would actually taught. Yeah. And and, and, in, a, and in, a, in a city that's very diverse, very different, low money you know not a lot of money and so many things that are happening in la that are you know different than other cities if if you know if i was in a graduate program and i suddenly sat next to a guy who had all this experience and everything like that i'd become a sponge you know <laughs> it's because it's hard you know it's hard especially if it's a person of color i'm like let me hear that experience because i want to know how i can you know take my craft and do the same thing with yeah. it I mean, you know, I'm sure there's other people there who like, like, oh, we have this Latino guy who tells us all these things, you know, but <laughs> at the contrary, I'm sure there's other people that were like, oh, shit, this is good. Like, I need to know all this stuff, you right. know, because teaching is really hard and not not more than ever at any time in history have people now realized how important teachers are, because, you know, when parents have to teach their kids, 
they go insane. <laughs> They're like, you know, writing. They want their kids to go back to school. So you and what you do as an educator and as a queer educator are more important more than ever now, you know? Yeah, and it took a pandemic for folks to realize that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can't teach these kids. They got to go back to school. <laughs> They're like, oh, now you think teachers are important? Pay them more, yeah. you know? We can't even pass minimum wage for $15. And teachers are doing the thing that you can't do at home. You can't even teach your kids for a couple hours a day because you freak the fuck out. You need to pay these teachers more. So it's, it's very important, especially with education. Um, I mean, I guess I guess I, I, I go into these things where I ask people questions, but most of them you, you sort of answer them. Um, Culturally-wise, do you think that that Latinos are, are now at the forefront of a lot of changes it's uh like i said earlier in the interview that drive within me like how do you continue how do you in the face of adversity still want to accomplish those goals that people are telling you you're not able to and i feel for me like in the back of my mind i always knew like the holding out for hope right and holding out for a better future and holding out for maybe i could be that that future for others right and so i feel like we saw this in the last election, in the last few elections, where Latinos were in the conversation of like who made a difference in in who became elected officials, right, across the country. And we're not talking about just presidential elections, but we're talking about different states and different levels of government. We are part of that conversation, and when we are part of that conversation, that means that we are given, we are we are uh, seen as that that that. A community that has that power to make that change, to elect officials who are going to um, represent us and maybe even look like us, right? So I feel like the more and more we are part of that conversation, the more and more we are afforded that power to continue to get out the vote and continue to vote folks who are going to be um, in power, who are going to help the community uh, as a whole continue to survive and continue to thrive so i feel like there's that that hope is still there and that that change is happening um you see folks in 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 uh you know political offices who are very vocal about you know issues that affect the latino community and so I, that's the hope that's what i need for me to continue to do the work that i can do because i know if there's folks out there who are doing their part at that level of power then i can also continue to do my part with what i you know what i'm doing in my life in my career so yes we are headed in that direction i see it so, i hear about so it so you're saying there is hope for the future of course <laughs> <laughs> i just wanted to hear as, that as a teacher okay yes there's hope yes. for the future uh, the children I, are i the i definitely <laughs> not being cliche but children are the future yep. Um, yeah, I want like a bunch of them so they can work really hard. And then when I'm old, they can just take care of me. Right. Um, but I think it's important. I think it's, it's, an, it's important for the more you get to know somebody, the more you get to know people in different cultures, um, the more you know that their struggles are real. And like, I feel like this episode's become like a journey through Will's life. And this, you're just one person. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's thousands and almost millions of Wilfredos out there that have gone through the same thing, you know? And there's people that are like, you know, really working their asses off to get a good education, but they can't do anything with it because, you know, they're immigrant or their status. Um, 
or you know things that have happened in their lives they have to quit and go to work you know i there's there's a story of of this you know uh central american i think it's central american uh you know janitor who like was going to school and trying to get an education and he had to stop you know going to school because he had to take care of his family he ended up like looking at what the company was doing and messing around with the potato chips yeah. that the company was doing it and he came up with the fucking hot cheetos yep. And now he's VP of, of uh, I guess, <laughs> cultural foods or something like that. Yeah. Even though we have a lot of things stepped against, and I think I, I'm not, I wouldn't uh, feel right without addressing the fact that that biggest obstacle that we have is white supremacy. This system that we live in was not made for any of us that look like us to succeed. And so we have to be resilient. We have to be survivors. We have to be all these different things that people who you know look at us like um what the hell are you doing like you know know your place or whatever you know they they don't understand that that is the biggest thing that we're fighting up against is that this this system and when i say system i mean schools i mean you know um jails jail system banks yeah all that this system was homeowning created yeah. for any of us to be a part of and to be to take any part of that and make it our own so that's what where our drive comes from is always knowing that we are fighting up against that um but there's numbers and powers and like i say there's hope that things will get better and for for us as the years go by the rest of the country is going to get browner and browner but here's the thing it's like white supremacy is a thing that people are not born with so it's taught so we need to reach people before they get that ingrained in their head white supremacy controls where we live what loans we can get what schools we can go to who gets this spot who gets that spot and i think that we need to start educating people and the more that people feel like look this isn't fair like you're gonna put a uh, you know a black mother in jail for trying to get her daughter into a better school but then you got all these people doing, you know, this fraud yeah. to get their children, their rich children universities and they get a couple of months. Exactly. You know, this woman's make, doing years in jail for trying to get a better education. So to me, it's like we, we have been set up in a way to fail. But it's that it's that thing. It's that will it's that will federal, you know, drive where you're like this obstacle here. Now you got to go to that obstacle. Yeah. And for somebody who's had a lot of obstacles, You've done good for yourself, sir. I think so. You've, and there's you've more, done really good. And there's more to come. So Yeah. <laughs> and now you're back in LA. I am. I'm back in LA after being away for six years. And it And what are so you doing good. now in LA? I am still a um a middle school teacher, so I got hired to continue to teach middle school out here, um, at another charter school. But my hope is in the future that I, I do want to, you know, after having now sixteen years of teaching experience to be able to be in a position where I'm uh, educating and mentoring other teachers who are coming into the profession. So my hope is one day to be a professor at a teacher education program where again, to teach to, other teachers, teach other teachers oh, okay, and nice. prepare them to be, to go into the field of education. That's great. That's yeah. great. I, I feel very old because you've been teaching for 16 years and I don't know what I've been doing <laughs> for 16 years. <laughs> Uh, but I think that I, you know, I, I'm very proud of like the people that I interview because I feel like I get to know 
things that I never knew about them. But I also am very proud of you because you're a friend and all your your transitions and your changes and all the things that have happened to you to get to this point. Um, you know, I, I watch from the sidelines and I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. You know, you were in Oregon and I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, Oregon's cool. I thought you were in Portland, but... <laughs> And then when you came back to LA, I was like, oh, that's nice. And then I come to find out now you live close to a friend of mine. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and so you're back in town. I mean, a nicer place than where you where you grew up. Right. But it's still, you know, it's still, you know, the same kind of area where, where yeah, you were close before. Enough. <laughs> close enough. Yeah. And now you get to eat pupusas all the time. And you probably like, you know, you probably bored of them <laughs> or whatever. But in that sense, let's let's do some 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 questions. Um, are, so. I'm guessing you're a bolillo person and not a tortilla person. Um, pan francés. So, okay, yeah. so that's like the little pirujos, like the ones that Guatemala eat too. It's, yeah, yeah, it's basically bolillo, but I feel like when I hear the word bolillo, uh, I hear it more in like Mexican. Mexican. <laughs> yeah. So there's a there's a difference if people didn't know. Um, black beans, of course. You know, or I, brown beans. I grew up with uh, brown beans. Because your you, your man is Cuban, so yeah. Black so, beans? No, yeah, that's so. I have a new respect for black beans, and I I do enjoy eating them because of my my partner. So yes. Okay. Yes. All right. All right. All right. Uh, and then salsa or no salsa? Uh, on what? What are we talking about here? <laughs> on your food. Um, I mean. An, what do you guys, you guys put something on your pupusas, yeah, sorry so, for the being ignorant. You guys put cortido, but then you put something else, the red sauce? Yeah, what, so what it's usually called? like a, a tomato-based sauce. So yeah, I guess you can call that salsa. Um, but I definitely only put that on my pupusas. I don't put that on anything else. <laughs> What's the most brown thing you have in your kitchen that your mom would be proud of? Oh, uh, let's see. Some probably some crema salvadoreña. Always have oh, that nice. in in my in my refrigerator. That's that's a crazy thing. Uh, uh, you know, now that I'm here in Highland Park, I don't I didn't know that there was a big Salvadorian community here, but there's a couple of markets now that are like selling Salvadorian chorizo and Salvadorian uh, crema, and it's so popular because every time I go and get some, they're out. Yeah. So there must be some hidden Salvadorians here in Highland <laughs> Park that I didn't know about. Um. I wanted to ask you this before, but I forgot. But um, what is one of the biggest misconceptions people have of you when they meet you? Um, that's a good question. I always feel like when they look at me, they, it, of course, they're not going to think automatically, this guy's a teacher, right? So that, and, and let alone the, the number of years that I've been teaching, I think that surprises a lot of folks um, when I tell them that. And then to further that because oftentimes I've, I've been in that situation where the assumption is if I'm a teacher I must be you know a Spanish teacher right or uh, teach what whatever other uh, teach what other other subjects like somebody like me teaches but when they find that, that I teach math and that I have a degree in math that's something that 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 you know folks are are surprised by um, in the teaching world are math teachers like like the cool people or like the rock stars or are they I like, like the ones that I like, like oh. to think so <laughs> or, they, or, or are they like the snobs they're like oh here comes the, the math teachers yeah they you think know, they're so cool you know we are probably some of the hardest working teachers I mean all teachers are but I feel like in particular our subject area is something that in in society at, as a whole 
it's okay to for somebody to say oh i'm not good at math right there's that that thing of like oh it's okay that you're not good at math and that's something that mm -hmm. we're trying to fight up against like we want our students to have this mindset that they can be you know mathematicians that they they that they can do math and so like even though we are that subject area that's considered maybe one of the more challenging ones once students really feel like they can they feel like they mastered you know something really really awesome so so you're answering the question by saying you are the snobs uh sure <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the math teachers are like the uh the social warriors like come on guys you can math is not hard you can do this <laughs> you know you're, you're like the guys at boot camp um all right so let let me let's do these word association we're just going to run through them real quick i do this with everybody who uh who i have time with um but i wanted to do it with you because i know that um you may understand some of this all right uh nike cortez uh solo culture yeah, yeah. all right hoop earrings <laughs> i <laughs> um mi vida loca <laughs> uh button down button up like the top button on the on the flannel shirts uh, um why am i getting all these movie references in my head like go ahead blood and blood go out ahead. american blood and me, blood out. that is a great movie blood <laughs> and blood out is a great movie if 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 y'all are not brown and you've never heard of that movie rent it blood in blood out it has like benjamin pratt and some other people but it's a it's a fun it's a funny movie to me but it's a pretty dope movie uh street elotes uh not my thing. Ah. Uh, that's something you're learning Champ about me. I do not care Champurado? for corn as much as other folks. <laughs> is, is corn is corn really bad because you don't digest it? Is that no, it's it just it's not my thing. All right. Uh, Champurado. Uh, atol de lote. Atol de lote. Ah, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I might have to write that one down because you know some, I forget that some people don't don't like yeah. that. Uh, raspados. What is that? Raspado. Oh, minuta. Yes. Um, tamarindo. See, every nobody nobody hates raspados. Champurado, but uh, elote, <laughs> you're the first el, elote hater. Um, all right, and now I'm gonna do people. Uh, Frida. Um. Dope. I don't know how else to describe her. Dope. Uh, Walter Mercado. Uh, icon, for sure. And then I'm gonna—I'm not gonna say the person's name, but I'm gonna say his song, and I'm sure you're gonna—you're gonna know that. Suavemente. <laughs> now that's a way to get a party started. <laughs> I feel I feel like when Elvis Crespo comes on, and it's and all you hear is that first suavemente, yeah. it's like people are like, oh shit! They put their mm -hmm. they put their foot down. They're they're like eating. They put it down. They're like, all right, let's go. Yeah, let's do this. Somebody takes takes the shot. They get up and they get on the <laughs> dance floor. It's it's such a it's such a brown thing that like um, you know my girlfriend <laughs> when we moved into this neighborhood. She first heard it, she didn't understand. But now when she hears it, she's like, oh, shit, someone's having a party. Yeah. 
Like exactly. that's all you have to hear is the first bar of that of that song, and it's like, oh dang, yeah. that's gonna be a party. <laughs> uh, and that's it. I think that's it. That's all I got for you. But uh, thanks so much for doing this. This is um, it was a lot of fun, and uh, there's so many things that I had no idea had happened in your life, and <laughs> and now I, you know I feel like uh, I have a full spectrum story of Wilfredo. And, uh, you know, again, very proud of you. Very honored that I was part of your life. Uh, and, uh, you know, I hope to see more things and maybe one day go to a university where people are graduating and they're like, oh, I had this teacher. His name was Wilfredo Echeverria. And I'm like, oh, I know that guy. And they're like, why are you talking to this crazy guy? Um, but uh, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I feel like your story is very important. And it should be heard. And uh, people need to understand that, you know, the immigrant struggle is, is not just people trying to come to America for free services, but, you know, escape death and having a better life. And a lot of immigrants are contributing to amazing things in this country that are making this country better. Right. You know, we're number 24 in education in the world. Mm-hmm. Why are we 24? We should be like three or two or one, <laughs> you know. But uh, hopefully with Will and his crazy theories about loving math <laughs> maybe we'll get there yeah <laughs> but thank you so much yeah, for doing this thank you Drew. thanks for listening don't forget to follow us on apple podcasts spotify stitcher also follow us on instagram leave a like leave a comment tell a friend share our stories and remember if you don't see color you don't see beauty